Hi, and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators. Please join me on my website at narctroopers.com for more articles, podcasts, and a video blog. Today's topic is the humiliation of the discard. They always tell you, well, it's nothing personal. It's not about you. But let's think about that. The humiliation of the discard by a narcissist, sociopath, or psychopathic person. The fact is, it is very personal. It's extremely personal. And that's why being cast aside and replaced can shred the very fabric of your being. It's an atomic bomb that just goes off inside of you. It's a deep, deep gutting where you feel eviscerated, like you've been sliced open and everything just scooped out. When you commit to a forever partner and open yourself up completely with trust that the intimacy is a special, sacred, private sharing between two people who are united as one, that makes you very vulnerable in every sense of the word. No one chooses to be humiliated, rejected, or betrayed. It's one of the most painful experiences that anyone can ever encounter. When we have been lied to, cheated on, or ruthlessly humiliated by our the, the partner that we love, the hurt and the pain are unbearable and overwhelming. And how could you ever trust anyone ever again or allow yourself to feel the, that kind of intimacy that preceded the betrayal of this person? It, it makes it where that's very difficult. Ten months out after I was discarded back in June of 2019, um, I'm certainly not able uh, to move on and look for another relationship. I, I can't imagine doing that in my current emotional state. After you have been with a person like this who is disordered, um, in many ways, it, it kind of ruins you, and it's a long journey back. The most degrading part of it all is, is not in the fact that you were cast aside like some broken appliance for the fuel that you have always provided this narcissist. The worst part um, is that is all that you did during the relationship that compromised your values and ethics. I, for one, and I know many people, we have groveled and we have begged, we have pleaded and we have cast aside all dignity and pride and just thrown ourselves on the ground prostrate in front of these people. And you also do other things. You sacrifice your moral character uh, a lot of the time and your ethics to try to hang on to them. You commit a thousand different transgressions against both yourself and other people that you know in order just to keep this person who is disordered and incapable of being 
what you ever need them to be, just to keep them in your life. You, you, you end up doing some pretty terrible things. Victims experience shame as a result of this subtle and not so subtle devaluation and blame that comes from this person. And it starts, it starts early in the relationship and slowly escalates throughout this narcissistic cycle of abuse. Um, and narcissists can never, let's remember this, they can never be accountable or take responsibility for anything that they do that causes harm to anyone. It is always, without exception, the fault of the victim. You see, because in their eyes, you are the problem, and they are vindicated and absolved of any and all culpability or responsibility. You know, they, they're not going to own it. The predator, this, this dysregulated, maladapted, mentally ill person that you are in love with, this, this predator views their partner with increasing contempt and revulsion as the victim fails to nurture their fragile egos or accept blame for the sins and transgressions committed against them. Not once, not twice, but repeatedly. They repeatedly endure this, and the more abuse they take, the more that that person who is disorder, disordered loses respect for them, as if they ever had any in the first place. But what little they do have, they lose it and become to they become filled with contempt, filled with um, just they're so repulsed by our weakness, our inability to escape, our inability to stand up and fight back or challenge them or anything. They um, do not. It's such a turnoff for them that sort of like pushes them to the exit and makes them want to leave. Um, the victim may accept this insidious abuse for years or even decades because of their own self-destructive, toxic programming and conditioning. It's like a script that is written for you in childhood. And unfortunately, this may feel all too familiar to the victim who may already be shame-based due to being raised in a toxic home throughout their formative years. So that usually is something that plays into all of this. So let's talk about D-Day. D-Day, the moment that this narcopath, which is short for a narcissist, psychopath, sociopath, um, this is the moment that this person does the big reveal. It's the big reveal. In one swift move, the mask comes off. Poof! And what you see is so unrecognizable that it feels like a slow-motion acid trip from hell. Yeah. Think about that. Um, it can't be real. Who is this stranger who was, you know, your life partner and just a few minutes before? They just shapeshift and transform, boom, in an instant like that. And after a ridiculous, nonsensical word salad of an explanation, 
they just leave. And that is that. From the love of your life to ghosted in under 20 minutes, under 10 minutes maybe, it is impossible to process such an unexpected and uh, abrupt transformation. You know, it's, it puts the person in shock. I know when my husband uh, announced that he was leaving, we had been uh, on vacation the day before and everything seemed fine. We were, um, everything seemed fine. Sure. There were, you know, there were, had were some problems here and there through 16 years. There were problems and we always got through them. Why would this be any different? Um, we were working on it. Yeah, I was working on it. I was trying to figure out ways to, to, um, we were looking for jobs and thinking about a move and, and going somewhere and doing some, having some things to look forward to new adventures. And then boom, he's just gone, um, without any, any warning, any discussion, any hint that he had made up his mind that it was time to go. And it gets worse after this, because as reality starts to sink in and the shock wears off, the silent treatment begins. They just, um, you know, you may have experienced bits of the silent treatment through the years. If you've been with your person for a long time, it, but, but this, when they discard you, it's like they drop off the face of the earth. It's like the partner that you knew and loved, the one who was so sweet and soft-spoken and, and certain that he would never, ever leave you as long as, as you both should live. It's like that person was suddenly abducted by aliens and replaced with some other imposter life force that doesn't even have a drop of human DNA coursing through their ice-cold veins. The loving partner you knew disappears in an instant and is replaced with someone completely unrecognizable. The narcissist, when they discard their partners, they may suddenly shift into a completely new persona. Sometimes they'll change their clothes, their wardrobe, their haircut. They start talking different, sounding different, new speech, um, new words. They may change their diet. They go from being a vegetarian to a carnivore or vice versa. Or uh, mine told me that now he was a lacto-ovo vegan or something like that, which is not what we were. But suddenly after he left, then that's, that's what he became. They have different priorities, different dreams, different careers, different homes, different locations. A lot of times they just pick up and move so they can start over the whole cycle of abuse in a new place where they haven't dirtied the waters, where people haven't, where they don't have a history and people know about them and what's going on. They have to go somewhere brand new where no one knows them and usually prey upon people younger and more naive and impressionable and gullible and who don't know what's happening and um, and they start over and do that there. That's certainly what mine did. He he left Austin, Texas, and moved to Beverly Hills. Yeah, Beverly Hills. And the weird thing about that is that for the past sixteen years, that was my dream. That was what I said. I want to go to California, West Coast, baby. Go out to uh, someplace out there and put my toes in the sand. 
when I retire, that's where I want to go. That's where we need to go. That's what we, that that's going to be awesome. All my life, I've said, I'm going to be there. I want to be a mermaid. I want to be, you know, over there. And I, my best friends live out there. And, you know, it, that's where I'm, I need to be. He goes there. And, and I just want to add narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths, they peel off layers of who you are and stick it on their own cells like it's skin, like they're building a technicolor dream coat. You know, that story about the technicolor dream coat, they have shreds of human skin of all their victims and personas and personality characteristics. And he has my words. He has my political beliefs, my ideas about music and art and opera and ballet and just everything, everything. That I, that I shared with him that was me, that was what I thought and what I knew and what I loved, he took it. He took it and claimed it as his. And now the next victim will be enjoying many of the things that he took from me because he took them, including the place where he is living. And that is not just my personal story. That is a common, if not... Um, typical way that narcissists, sociopaths, and psychopaths uh, behave after they go. So um, the narcissist is a master of this silent treatment, and it depends on whether they're a lower narcissist. There's cadres of narcissists, lower, medium, mid-range, medium, and the high, grandiose, grand narcissist is the highest one. Um, and how they do things depends on which cadre that they are um, part of. But the message can't be more clear. They, they do the silent treatment. And they're telling you just how much they have a complete lack of respect for you or your feelings when they do that. It's telling you how inferior you are and how they could care less if you were okay. And how none of these things you did were enough or even ever remembered now. They are off to the races with their new supply. And as far as they concerned are concerned, you do not even exist. I know I've said this on so many of my podcasts and in so many of my articles. I talk about scorched earth policy. I talk about being erased, being annihilated. Um, there's a lot of words I've used to describe that, but that's really what they do. They don't remember there's something wrong with their neurological processes, with their brain, their amygdala, and all of those things that prevent them from having empathy and prevent them from having morals or guilt or accountability and all that stuff. On top of that, on top of all of that, they don't remember. It's like a selective amnesia. Your time with them, it's like it never happened. I promise you, they don't remember any of it. They can do things, go places, have experiences that they had with you, and it's never going to cross their mind that that's something that belonged to you. Like, for example, let's say my husband and I liked to share a tiramisu every time we went to an Italian restaurant. We just automatically knew that's what we were going to do. 
we would rank it on a scale of one to 10. We'd keep that little catalog of rankings. It was just kind of a fun thing that we did. So I don't even think I can have tiramisu ever again. And if I do, I guarantee you I'm going to think about that. I'm going to remember that that was our thing that we did for 15 years. Um, if my ex takes someone else out to an Italian restaurant and the whole tiramisu thing comes up, he's never even going to give me a moment's thought. He's not going to remember that was our thing. He's not going to remember the two spoons and the shared tiramisu. He's not going to remember the things that I said and the places that I thought had the best. I had places where I said, this place has the best tiramisu hands down. He's not going to remember that. He doesn't even remember me or anything that we ever did. It's gone. Like it never existed. And that's probably just one of the most horrifying things out of this whole experience to have a whole relationship just erased. It would be bad enough if you had to say it ended. So let's grieve over it and mourn it and honor it for what it was at one time in its glory. But it doesn't work that way. It's like that. It's like you push a button and all those years just disappear. Poof. They're just totally, totally gone. Uh, as, and you just don't exist. You can humiliate yourself by texting and calling and messaging, and you're not going to get a response. You can beg for mercy plead for another chance, rail against the inhumanity of it all. Deaf ears, that's what you're going to get, deaf ears. They are much too busy with your replacement to consider anything that you are trying to get them to understand or to admit or to own up to or remember or anything. Um, They have convinced themselves out of necessity that you are the villain who has failed them. You're the bad guy. You betrayed them. You hurt them. You wounded them. And all of that is projection. You know, that's what they did to you, but they flip it. It's called blame shifting. And they say that you did it to them. And you know what? The weirdest thing is they believe that. They make themselves actually believe it. It's not like they're sitting there lying and and knowing that they're lying just to try to get sympathy or something. No, they actually believe their own craziness. Um, They believe that you are repulsive, pathetic, and disgusting. Um, Whereas maybe the day before, they were telling you how much they loved you so much. They don't understand how the very fabric of your soul has been ripped to shreds and what it feels like to discover that everything you thought was real and true and certain was a lie, a fabrication used to gather fuel and supply from you, as well as other perks, you know, if you had money or if you had something to offer them that they felt that they could benefit from. When the well runs dry, then it's time for them to go get a new upgrade, you know, and that's just, it's it's just that cut and dry, just that simple. Um, the agony and the despair for the real victim is so immense and profound that you just crumble as the world comes crashing down around you. And this, and this narcopath 
who has is really gifted at just disappearing and erasing you and ghosting you and being silent and being invisible because it's like you don't know each other. You're strangers. Um, when all that's happening, that narcopath, he's going to put his head on that pillow. He's going to sleep so well, like a baby. He's going he's, he's to be asleep before his head hits the pillow. And you could be lying beside him going crazy, and he's still going to sleep well. And you need to remember, after the discard, he's going to be sleeping well. He's not going to lose one moment of restful, restorative beauty rest for you. You may be laying there in your bed with tortuous, tortuous ruminations that cause panic attacks and and of such magnitude, you just know you're not going to survive till morning, curled up in a fetal position, laying in this empty bed that used to be your bed with him, unable to sleep, just an absolute despair. They're not losing one second of sleep for you. you I guarantee you they are not. So that means that we, we the ones left behind, we're the fool. And in a way, he's like the devil or she. If, if, if it, you know, it could be either at the end of this relationship with this nar- narcopath, it's not your typical breakup or divorce. As with all cycles of abuse recovery and post-traumatic recovery, there are things at play that transform the healing into a life or death experience. And some people really just don't make it. They either end their lives or spend years maybe decades stuck in a loop of anguish that never ends. It's, it's crazy, but I've seen it in my support groups. I have known of two in the last 10 months, two people who had come to these support groups for recovery from narcissistic abuse that ended their lives, committed suicide, two of them in 10 months. And that's just from the circles that I have gone to, the support groups that I've been in, and I've known more than two, way more than two, show up to these groups and say, yes, I have been in recovery trying to get over this for six years, eight years, 10 years. Oh my God. I sit there and think, holy crap, am I, is that going to be me? Am I going to be that person that is five years from now? eight years from now, 10 years from now, still trying to get over this, this uh, relationship with this disordered, mentally unstable, uh, narcissistic, sociopathic psychopath. It's going to take me 10 years. I'm past 60 now. I don't have 10 years. I may not even be alive in 10 years. How am I going to allow that to happen where I'm still in recovery 10 years from now, I'll be 70 something game over. There's no creating a new life after that. Sorry to all of you who went out there and found love after 70. I'm just saying for me, knowing my health problems and my fortitude and my ability to do this, it ain't happening. No, if I can't get over it soon and find a way to reboot, regroup and get on my feet get on my freaking feet soon, then I'm done. This is, you know, I'm done. This, this, this thing with him was probably the last 
love of my life, the last craziness of my life, the last time I felt powerful passion and love and commitment and loyalty and all of those feelings, it's like they're, they're, um, they're like dead inside, or maybe they're not even inside. I don't know what happened to them. I'm, <laughs> but they're, they're not accessible at this time, and they need to be. I want them to be. I'm ready for them to be. It's been 10 months. He replaced me and was sleeping around the next day. Actually, probably, I'm thinking maybe months, if not a few years, years maybe before he left, he was sleeping around. But for sure, he didn't waste any time. He's been through in the last year and maybe before that, I would say a good, you know, 20 people, 30. I don't know. He's quite quite um, enthusiastic, but um, I, I just can't be that person still in recovery for that many years. And it's common. It's not just the unusual one or two people that show up to meetings. It's common, way more common than, than you want to be. Trauma bonding, CPS, CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, Stockholm syndrome, and cognitive dissonance where you don't know up from down from sideways what's real, what's fiction, what's fact. You don't, like all of that, that's part of recovery when you have been through a, a relationship with a narcopath. And then addiction is also a factor along with attachment issues and childhood wounding. All of these things are in your way. They're obstacles. They're impediments. These are not your regular recovery experiences. You can't just throw a generic blanket on it and say, oh, this is a breakup. Oh, this is a divorce. You're going to go through seven stages of grief and then you're going to be okay. Okay, just get over it. Let's go. Let's go out and, you know, meet people. No. No, you can't. This is something completely different. Um, people who suggest that you just get over it obviously have no understanding of what they're talking about. They have no understanding of abuse that, that is caused from narcissistic, sociopathic, psychopathic relationships. They don't get it. Uh, because it's a lot to get, and it's almost like you can't believe it until you experience it. Uh, you really can't. You can't expect them to understand. How could they? You don't even believe this is really happening. It's so horrific. So the aftermath of this relationship with this person is the most devastating and soul-crushing experience that you can ever have. You lose yourself in the madness and try to make sense of it, but this toxic bonding, that it feels like an addiction to heroin. The gaslighting, the invalidation create cognitive dissonance that makes you doubt your own sanity. Statistics indicate that many victims just, just they get stuck because they don't know what's happening. The anguish can't end because they're so confused about what really happened, what's real, what you know, how, like trying to make sense of it is just too much, uh, too much. It's so, the recovery from this is a whole body experience with the body, the spirit, the soul, the emotion, uh, the mental part of it. All these different parts are engaged. It's a crisis for all of them. Trauma is stored in the body. The mind follows the body 
the body holds this. You know, right after this uh, happened to me in June of 2019, I would wake up every 30 minutes with I could feel my heart pounding on the bed. Uh, I slept on my side or on my stomach, and it was beating so hard. I thought I was having a heart attack. It was unnatural. It was like something out of a science fiction. I thought there was an alien in there trying to get out. I would wake up gasping for breath. I would uh, be sweating. I would wake up crying with my pillow wet because I had been crying in my sleep. I would wake up with a scream. The scream would be what would wake me up. The the wailing. The the it it is it, like. Um, I can't, I can't even tell you what that's like. I had not been awake thinking about him, working myself up into a tiz, getting all dramatic or histrionic or anything like that. No, I was asleep, exhausted from lack of sleep, catching a little bit of sleep. And that physical sensation awakened me. My body was shivering like I had a high fever with rigors. I trembled and shook for three weeks. Three weeks I could not get out of bed because I could not hardly even walk to the bathroom. I was shaking, not just my hands, but my legs, my body, my torso, my whole, I was shivering, shivering with tremors and shakes so much that I could not function. So this humiliation that, that people are going through, this degrading, uh, dehumanizing experience, it's dehumanizing. And if there is a person out there who has experienced narcissistic abuse from a narcissist, a sociopath, a psychopath, and um, they're in recovery, I know you know what I'm talking about. I know you can identify with this and say, oh my gosh, yes, yes, that happened. I felt that. It was not just a mental thing I could control or an emotional thing I could regulate. It was physical. It was chemical. In the chemicals that were shooting off in my brain, the dopamine, the serotonin, all of those kind of things out of control. Uh, the, the physiological components of it, the neural pathways, this is a whole body, spiritual, um, mental, emotional, soulful uh, annihilation that has happened to you. It is not your regular um, breakup. So many times that's why I think that these people are called soul rapists or spirit rapists. They murder hope. They're full on sadists uh, because they have no remorse. They can look right at you while you're just dying and uh, not even blink or feel anything. So this, this humiliation and ultimate loss of your will to continue is really inevitable at, to some degree after the narcissist discards you and 
you're going to have to find a way to move past it. It's dehumanizing. It's not just humiliation. It's dehumanizing is the better word. Your chances of survival and overcoming this annihilation of your very identity increases with knowledge of what you are encountering and also the support of other people who have been through it. I can't stress that enough. Even if your therapist tells you that they have trauma-informed therapy for you and that they have experience with PTSD, if they have not done narcissistic abuse recovery, work with people leaving sociopathic and psychopathic relationships with people who have those mental issues, if they have not directly been trained to speak that language and to treat those experiences that follow, then they can't help you. You're wasting your money. It's like $130 per visit these days. Is that That's the going rate. Because they aren't going to know about these things I'm telling you, about how to treat, you know, the, the um, they may give you a serotonin blocker, an SSR, an SSRI like Trintelix or something, some prescription drug to kind of numb you up, to kind of help you get through it. I know mine gave me lots of prescription drugs. I was getting those. I came home with bagfuls from the doctor's office, two bagfuls of, of prescription drugs to medicate myself to survive. And it was like shooting in the dark. That was just one piece of it. Yeah, there were chemical things happening in my brain. Yes, the medicines maybe could help me, maybe not. But there were other things that needed to be addressed. This, is, this requires a multiple uh, approach with many different tools and modalities to get past it. So I just want to stress that, that, that people are not going to understand how to help you. You have to be careful to find people who specifically know about this and have witnessed it and who understand it and have studied it and looked at the research and looked at the, all of the statistics and they know what to do. So if you're suffering, you are suffering from the loss of hope. Because really that's the end result. After all the despair and the gnashing of the teeth and rendering of the garments and pounding hard in the middle of the night and the trembling shakiness where you, you, know, you feel like you're, you're having earthquakes go off in you 24-7 for weeks following something like this. I lost 20 pounds in three weeks. 20 pounds in three weeks, best weight loss program ever. Couldn't, couldn't do anything else. Um, that loss of hope is the end result that happens after all this. And that's deadly. It's deadly, lethal thing when you lose hope because you lose the hope that you're going to be okay. You lose hope that anyone's ever going to understand what's happening to you and that, and that they're not going to, get it or forgive you or support you or understand you, you're going to lose hope that you're ever going to be able to feel anything again besides pain. You're going to lose hope in so many different ways. And that is the worst product of this. It's worse than the sadness, worse than the anger, worse than the, than all of it. 
is the loss of hope because that's the one thing you have to have. You have to make the decision to live. It's, it's a, you know, actually it is a existential identity crisis that follows narcissistic abuse. That's exactly what it is. An existential identity crisis. And you have to arm yourself with every weapon that you can get your hands on. And you have to fight like hell. Fight for your life. It doesn't matter if you've been humiliated and degraded. I grabbed onto my person as he was trying to get out the door. He had to pry me off. I was falling to my knees. You know, I was begging and pleading. Okay, so we do those things. All right, it's ugly, it's messy, it's shameful. We're human. And they have pulled the rug out from under us and stabbed us with a dagger right in the heart. And they've just twisted it and twisted it and just smirked and smiled all the way through it with such pleasure to see our pain. Yeah, we have been totally destroyed. But if you can just hold on to the hope that other people have survived it. I'm 10 months out. I'm still here. There are other people who have survived it and they have been here longer than me. And we have to look to those survivors and say, help us get where you are. Help us get to that other side. Cause that's all that matters is holding on to the hope, the humiliation of this experience, the shame, all of that, let it go. This was something supernaturally horrific, beyond words, epic disaster, you know? Forgive yourself for doing some of the humiliating things you did. I challenge anyone to be in your shoes or my shoes who wouldn't do the same thing under the same circumstances with the same set of things that they are experiencing at that moment, I would challenge anybody to do better. I just don't, you know, it, that's the way it is, but we have to look to others who know how to get through this and who have survived it themselves, grab their hand. They will help you. I don't know any survivors of narcissistic abuse who just turn their back And just pretend like it never happened and go on. When you recognize that someone else is experiencing this, oh my gosh, you are bound to them. You are sisters. You are brothers. You are comrades. You are warriors, soldiers, troopers together through this terrible, invisible enemy that wants to kill you, to kill your soul and your spirit and your will to live. You can do it. You can survive. And I just want to put that message out there. You have to get up. You have to get up. You can't lay there forever, bleeding and trembling and dying. You have to stand up and fight for your life. You have to accept. You have no choice but to accept the reality and let that person go. You have to let them go. If you have any hope of getting to the other side, you'll have to let them go. Go no contact. And if you fail, then start over again. Day one, no contact. And then if you fail, 
Start over again. Day two, no contact. One step at a time. One breath at a time. One day at a time. Then one month at a time. And then we get there together. Find your tribe. Find those people. Get online. Get those support groups. Call those hotline numbers. Seek seek those people. The therapists, the counselors who can refer you to people trained in specifically this kind of abusive relationship. But I cannot tell you what a difference that that's going to make. And frankly, it could save your life. So that's my message for you today. Um, If you think you know someone else who needs to hear this, please share. Please share. Because we... uh, we, we need to recognize the, the magnitude of all of this. Take it very seriously and um, stand together in our fight to be okay, to be whole, to heal, and to reclaim a life without that person in it. We, we can do that. You may not be able to envision it. Sometimes I can't envision it. And sometimes I break no contact and then I have to be kind to myself and forgive myself and say, Hey, it's only been this amount of months. I'm still in recovery. I'm still healing. I'm I'm still finding my way back. I'm not there yet. I'm going to get there, but I'm not there yet. And it's okay. It's okay. It's okay if we fail and stumble sometimes, but the other people, that are going through this with us, they help us stand up. They come over and they grab us by the arm and they say, come on, stand up. I know you stumbled. I know you fell, but get up. You can't stay there. You have to get up and keep moving. That's my message for you. Sorry, the podcast went a little long this time. I'm very passionate about this. And that's why I'm making the podcast. And that's why I make the video vlogs. And that's why I write the articles. I want to put this out there. I did not have anyone those first three weeks. It's a miracle I found the right people at the right time. But those first few weeks, I didn't know what to do, where to turn, or I did not have the help I needed. And it was, I almost didn't make it because of that. And I don't want anybody else to go through that. I want you to know what to do, how to get help, and and to know and to believe that there is life after this, that we can get through it. I've seen it happen. For each person I have seen that stuck, for each person that I knew that gave up, I see more than that who do get on and get past it and and survive and go on to thrive, and they and they're fine. They're fine. So let's be those people, okay? And um, I'll see you next time. Until then. Uh, just keep on, keep on breathing, keep on keeping on, and it's going to be okay. All right. Love to all. Bye. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 